how thankful we should be for the mercy of God and the truth of what Paul wrote in Romans 5.20. I'll remind you of his words there. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Isn't that the testimony of your life? Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. It's not wrong of us to say that the grace of God is a conquering grace. It conquers our sinfulness and leads us to glory based on the merits of someone else, based upon the merits of Jesus. The grace of God, as we sang this morning, truly is amazing when we understand it biblically. It is not grace if we get what we deserve. It's grace when we don't get what we deserve and experience the mercy of God. And in that sense, we rightly sing the words of John Newton this morning. And a help to me this morning as we approach Judges chapter 10. There are different ways that people have dealt with this 10th chapter. And you're going to see some of the difficulties as we work our way through it. There is a verse tucked in here that I pray long after we're done with it this morning that you will continue to meditate on and that the Lord would continue to open to our understanding and help us know as much of it as we can. And as we read the chapter, no doubt your mind and I will gravitate to it. One of the things that stands out of this 10th chapter, really out of the book of Judges as a whole, the things that we cannot mistake is are the facts that God is exceedingly merciful. He is full of grace. And while he is exceedingly merciful and full of grace, he is completely just. And he is completely holy. This is what comprises the biblical God, the God of Scripture. And in anything that we think concerning God that does not measure up to what Scripture has revealed of him, we need to quickly jettison that from our understanding and seek to have a view of God that is constructed by what he has revealed to us. And so I, I want to approach this a little differently. Chapter 10 is short, so I want to read it in its entirety, and then we'll come back and work our way through it. Beginning in verse 1, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim, and he judged Israel for 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cammon. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. 
So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead, moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, and and note as we go through, this is different. We haven't seen this before. The Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from the Sidonians, and the Amalekites, the Mayanites, when they oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And that's the verse, or at least the portion of the verse, that I hope and pray the Lord would give us some understanding of this morning, his soul no longer enduring misery. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the elders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Immediately in chapter 11, Jephthah comes on to the scene. So for the next week or so, we'll deal with Jephthah and his vow and the confusion that comes along with that. And Lord willing, he will give us some biblical clarity and insight concerning it. But I don't want to skip over this 10th chapter. It seems to be the foundation and setting the stage for all that will follow. It seems to be the, a hinge point of what we've dealt with so far and all that will come after it. This chapter is different. We've read of God's dealings with his people in a different fashion. His response is altogether different. The first thing that I want you to see with me out of chapter 10 is that God is exceedingly merciful from the beginning. It simply says in verse 1, after Abimelech there arose to save. And then it gives us the name of the Savior, Tola. But just in that first phrase of the first verse, do you remember anything about Abimelech? It's been two weeks since we looked at Abimelech. He was Gideon's son, born of a concubine. He had 70 brothers. And you'll remember that he sacrificed all 70 of those brothers on one stone 
sacrificing them to false gods, in essence. And then by the end of chapter 9, we're reminded that Abimelech, being repaid wickedness of God in verse 56, had an upper millstone dropped out of a tower onto his head by a woman. And so while he sacrificed his brothers on one stone, God repaid him by dropping one stone on his head. And then he, in his last moments, begged to be killed by a young man so that he would not have the dishonor of being known as having been killed by a woman. And so after all of this wickedness, after all of this perversity, there arose to save, and by that we understand God raised up this man. That's amazing grace, is it not? That's mercy beyond comprehension. That in the face of all of this depravity, in the face of all of this willful sin against a holy and good God, that he would not leave a people to wallow in the consequences of their own sin. Several things we can say about this. First of all, I think it's apparent the Lord will have the final word. The Lord has the ending say. In the end of this, we learn those who live wickedly who will not come to repentance and faith in Christ will die a sinner's death like Abimelech. And the physical death is not even worthy to be compared to the spiritual or what the scripture calls the second death. Not only will God have the final word, and not only does this show us the amazing grace of a holy God, Notice the lack of detail that's given concerning Tola and even Jair in verses 3, 4, and 5. One person has summed it up this way. Quiet and peaceable reigns, though they are the best to live in, yield the least variety of matter to be written and spoken of. Such were the days of Tola and Jair. They were humble, active, and useful men, rulers appointed by God. There just wasn't much to say about them. God raised them up. Seems as though they carried out their responsibilities in a righteous way before him. One reigning for 23 years, the other reigning for 22 years. Very little is said. But what lies behind the scenes, I I think, is worth mentioning and, and bringing out here. The reason that these men came onto the scene certainly is due to the grace of God, but also it's the grace of God extended to a remnant. We aren't given their names. We aren't even privileged to see them mentioned, but surely... Surely somewhere in this midst of everything gone wrong, there were a few faithful and righteous 
members and for their sake the Lord extends grace and mercy to them through Tola and Jair. You know, we have the same hope. We have the same hope. God always has a remnant. He acts in mercy and grace to that remnant. He preserves them. He sees us through. And even in the midst or sometimes immediately on the heels of some, some great sin in our own lives or, or whatever the case may be, God saves again. And so when we read these first two accounts of these two men, these are considered two of the judges that are recorded in this book out of the 12, some number them. And just like Shamgar, the first, you remember him? He only had one small verse that said not even as much detail as these. It seems to be the ones who rule in some type of wickedness or, or make their, their sin against God known, even if they initially do some things right, like Gideon, that get more of the airtime. And then we have Jephthah and Samson, and we know of, of their dealings and the Lord's dealings with them. But something else that is altogether different in the sixth verse of this chapter, and this is the second point, is to notice the exceeding sinfulness of sin. I want you to do something with me or, or, or just follow along with me here for a moment. I want you to look at verse 12 of chapter 3. And there we read, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 4. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So that's the cycle that we've seen repeat itself over and over. But something is different in verse 6. You probably picked up on it when we read through it. Let me read this verse again. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. That we've heard before, but this is new. And the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the people of Ammon. And the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. This is as bleak as it gets in the book of Judges. This is what we could refer to as the metastatic growth of sin. That's the word that we all dread to hear when ourselves or someone we know and love has cancer. We, we dread to hear that word that speaks of rapid growth, being found in new areas. This is the very nature of sin in the life of God's creation. And what it teaches us what can we learn from this detail? First, we know that no, all of Scripture is inspired of God. Every word, every detail is given. 
what we learn is that sin is not to be trifled with. Sin is not a game. And sin not mortified, which is the biblical word for how a believer deals with sin. You see it for what it is. You, you repent of it. You pray for grace. And then you take steps and act in ways that help distance you from sin. Sin not mortified and sin not repented of grows like cancer. And in the hand of the adversary of all truth, the devil himself... In the adversary of all righteousness, sin will take you to a place you never imagined possible. It will take you farther than you wanted to go initially. Let me read the verse again. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. And the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, Philistia. All of this is new. And it's as if they've just said, any and every God, come on. But then the greatest detail perhaps is given at the end of verse 6. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. While they were bringing all of these other gods in, they didn't even play the part of the hypocrite and, and keep the Lord in the mix. They completely cast him out. How many throughout history have been completely and utterly destroyed? by unmitigated sin, by sin that is not checked, by sin that is not repented of, by sin that is not mortified. And it always seems to begin with just a bit, doesn't it? And before you know it, you're right in the middle of verse 6, and sin has added to sin. The sinfulness of sin has been made known, and you have fallen and slipped further into the hole than you ever wanted to go or that you ever thought was possible. And by the end of it, God forbid, we ever end up in the end of verse 6, forsaking the Lord and not serving him at all. But see, that's where sin wants to take you. That's where the devil would have you. Because this is where the devil lives. This is where he dwells. He has forsaken the Lord. He is not serving him. He is opposed to everything righteous, holy, and good. So we must heed the warnings of Scripture. Believer, heed the warning of Scripture. When the Holy Spirit of God in mercy and grace brings conviction to your life over some sin, even if it be in your eyes a small one and one easily controlled, heed the voice of the Spirit in your conscience. I believe it was Martin Luther that said, it is never safe to go against your conscience. Our conscience is a mysterious gift given to us of the Lord. It's that part of us that knows right from wrong and makes us feel guilt. And in that sense, it is a tremendous gift to the natural man, but it is a tremendous gift to the believer as well. Sinning against light, sinning against knowledge... Is very, very dangerous. 
And here we see how far it takes. What is the result of this? So far, if we were to go back and read 3.12, 4.1, and 6.1, either in the same verse or the next two verses that follow, there is the grace of God given. He raises up someone to intervene and help them. But the result of this in verse 7 also is new. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. It's burning. And it's not wrong at all to see that the Lord here is filled with fury. Why? Because he is a jealous God. Jealousy in God is a holy and righteous attribute. Jealousy in us is most often a result of pride and arrogance and some other combination of sin. But jealousy in God is, is holy, right, and good and for our benefit. The anger of the Lord hot against Israel. So what did he do? What is the result of his anger? Well, the scriptures tell us that he sold them. And that just means he gave them over into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And those two groups of people, we're told here in these verses, harassed and oppressed Israel for 18, not days, months, but 18 long years. It must have seemed an eternity to those who were involved in it. But if eternity were only that short. If 18 long years were all that those who have rejected Christ had to endure. But that's not what the scriptures tell us at all, is it? Notice the summary in verse 9 of this selling into the hands of the Philistines and Ammonites. The end of verse 9 says that Israel was severely distressed. And this must have been completely and totally destructive. I mean, we've already seen that at one point they were judged of God. They would plant their crops and people would come out of the mountains and either take their crops or destroy them. We've seen how harassed that they have been by others, but now we're told this unique detail. They were severely distressed. This is what it is like for God to totally give over a people. When his anger burns hot against a people, then the only result can be severe distress. So what do they do? Verse 10 tells us the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They've done this before. Their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents have followed this same pattern. And the Lord has followed it with deliverance and salvation and peace and prosperity for a time. But this time it's a little different. They say the right things. Notice that. What comes out of the mouth is right. But the Lord sees behind the tongue. He sees the heart. 
they say, we have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord says to them, and in saying to them, he reminds them of past deliverances and is calling to their remembrance their abuse of these past deliverances. The Lord had worked a way of escape for them before, and all it did was lead them in time to falling further in the hole than they had ever been. To abuse the grace of God is exceedingly sinful. He says to them in reminding, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians? He goes all the way back to their captivity in Egypt. Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the people of Ammon, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the, and the Mayanites when they oppressed you. You cried out to me, I delivered you from their hand. Yet, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. This is hell of hell, is it not? For a holy and righteous and just God to say, I will deliver you no more. It's equal and on par with those words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Depart from me. I never knew you. But the difference, this is still in the larger sphere and in the larger context. This is still a day of grace when that day that Christ is speaking of, the day of grace has come to a close. But this is what the Lord says. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. Just like he repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, the Lord here, in a sense, is repaying the wickedness of this people. And he is just and right to do so. He said, you chose these gods for yourself. You forsook me. Now go pray to them. Leave me alone. The children of Israel said to the Lord again, a second time, we have sinned, but this time they add, do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they throw themselves completely into the hands of the holiness of God, but they take it a step further in verse 16 and they act upon their words. There seems to be at least the beginnings of the fruit of repentance here in verse 16. They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And then this mysterious great detail and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. The King James says here his soul grieved, could no longer endure the grief. or the misery of Israel. I don't know if that phrase causes you to, to wonder as much as it does me, but to me it's fairly amazing. 
that the soul of God, God in his very being, could no longer endure the misery of his people. So let's see if we can look at this a little more closely. And what a heart of compassion we find. The misery that they were enduring was of their own doing. God just told them, you chose these gods. They willingly chose to serve these false gods. But in the end, isn't all misery, even mine and yours, a product of our own doing? Because of the presence of sin in the world and because we are sinners ourselves, even post-conversion, we have a sin nature. The old man continues to reside within us. But I think it's significant to understand what evokes this mercy of God. And to see this, we just look at the words that are here in the end of verse 16. His soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. The scriptures do not say here that he is responding to their repentance. It says he is responding to their misery. True, they did repent twice over, second time even bearing fruit of repentance, but the, the scripture does not say his soul could no longer endure because of the repentance of Israel. But just the fact that he saw them wallowing, as it were, in their own blood, in the misery of it, he could not, stay, he could not endure it. This reminds us of a couple of verses. Your Bible may even take you, if it's a reference Bible, to these verses in Psalm 106. Verses 43 to 45, many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. Isn't that what's taking place here? Again, Isaiah 63, verse 9. In all of their affliction, speaking of his people, in all their affliction, he, God, was afflicted. This is the level of care and mercy and grace that we receive from him. In our affliction, he's afflicted. In our misery, he is affected. That seems to be the point of this detail in verse 16. His soul no longer enduring the misery. What caused God to act here? Pure and unmitigated misery of his people. We see the end of it in verse 17 which really leads us up to the 11th chapter and the introduction of Jephthah, but 
The people of Ammon gathered together, encamped in Gilead. The children of Israel assembled in Mizpah. The people and leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? Whoever it is, he shall be the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. Just like Gideon, there is the description of being a mighty man of valor, but then an immediate revelation of his weakness. For Gideon, he was hiding, right? He was treading out wheat in a wine press for fear. This mighty man of valor, Jephthah, was the, was the son of a harlot. And again, next week when we get to him, we're going to see that he's embedded right there in Hebrews 11. And that's going to dictate how we view much of what the scriptures reveal to us about him here in chapters 11 and 12. But I want to go back and, and spend some more time here with verse 16. And I think a couple of things that I read this week are, were helpful to me. Hopefully they're going to be helpful to you as well. Speaking of the relationship of repentance and salvation. Del Ralph Davis, obviously a name that I've mentioned several times, been a great help to me reading his commentary. He says on this verse, our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of his compassion. I think that sums it up pretty well. Where does your hope lie? If it's in the sincerity of your repentance, there will always be question as to how sincere it really was or is. But our hope finds its ultimate in full rest, not in our own sincerity, but in the intensity of God's compassion, of his mercy. How often in dealing with someone who is having doubts of their own salvation, how often have we said, well, were you sincere when you believed? What a slippery slope. And thank God our assurance does not have to rest on our sincerity. Our assurance is steadfast and sure, well-founded when it rests solely in the compassion and mercy of God whose soul could not endure our misery. That's the only reason that we're led to believe that he acts for this people yet again. Because of his mercy. And here we find a bit of what some have called the tension that is in God. This is a biblical tension that we step away from. We see it for what it is. We glory in it. We believe it. It's expressed like this. He is the God whose holiness demands he judge his people. 
We agree with that, right? God's anger burned against his people. He is the God whose holiness demands he judge his people, yet whose heart moves him to spare them. Aren't you thankful to know that God? You can't create or construct a God like that. On our best day, put all of our best minds together, we would have never come up with a God like this. The God whose holiness demands justice, yet whose heart moves him to compassion. That's the God of the Bible. And we see it displayed nowhere more gloriously and awfully than the cross of Jesus Christ. His holiness demanded justice. And the cup of his full fury was drained to the dregs by his son to reveal that his heart moved him to compassion. You realize it would have been just, holy, right of God to leave all of us in our sin and to let his fury burn hot against us, to sell us into the hands of those who would come and plunder us and leave us for all eternity severely distressed. That would have been right of God. He would have been just if he had so dealt with us. But verse 16 comes to play. He could no longer endure the misery of his people. And so he acts based upon his compassion. And just like we read in verse 1 of chapter 10, after Abimelech, which is representative of all kinds of wickedness, after Abimelech there arose to save. And that's the story of the scriptures, right? After the fall in the garden, after the sinfulness of man entered, after creation fell, after the sinfulness of man was worked out in any number of ways, there arose to save Jesus the Christ. According to the mercy and compassion of God. So I want to I close and end in one place, and it's a minor prophet, so start the search for Joel, or just listen as I read. Find Daniel and go to the right, a few minor prophets through Hosea, Joel, just before Amos. We find some interesting verses here that through study this week I was reminded of these and pointed to these and I want to end this, this sermon with them. This is a call to repentance issued by the prophet Joel. This is the Lord in verse 12 of Joel 2 says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, 
So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Here's the significance. We said back in Judges chapter 10, verse 16, that his salvation was based more on his compassion than the repentance of the people. What do you see reflected here in Joel chapter 2? There is a call to repentance, but what does it rest on? What is the foundation? Why, why does the call to repentance have any bearing whatsoever? It is because he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Short answer. This call to repentance is based upon God's goodness and mercy. And here we find another bit of tension that we have to deal with. Paul equates the repentance of the Thessalonians with their salvation. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And so we must say that it's a condition. And please hear me carefully. Repentance is a condition but not the cause. It's a condition that must be met, but it's not the cause of our salvation. It's not a work that we produce and then is accepted of God. It's a fruit, really, of regeneration and God granting us a repentance. And all of it, again, is based upon his eternal compassion. If you look at verse 14, if you're still in Joel 2, notice where the hope here is given, where it rests. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. The hope here again is in grace. Will he? If he does, it's all of grace. The hope here is not in any amount of human sorrow. It's what will God do? And aren't you thankful? That he is bent, so to speak, towards being merciful. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's forgiving. He is the great forgiver. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Casts them into the depths of the sea, remembering them no more. But please hear this as well. This invitation of grace, this invitation to come and drink deeply at the water of salvation, the well of salvation, is extended today. It's extended now. It will come to an end. The invitation will be withdrawn and the day of judgment will come 
And so my appeal to you is to come to Christ. Realizing he is full of mercy. There's no one in the room, nor could our collected sins be compiled to say that we are too far gone. I like this. I've heard this before, and I'll close with this. You can consider consider your works in two different piles. All of your good works, all of your bad works. A lot of people believe if, if this pile of good works outweighs my pile of bad works, then all is well. A biblical understanding of these two piles is to turn from them both. Turn your back on both, all the good and all the bad. And in doing that, turn to Christ. He'll save you. The good doesn't matter. The bad doesn't matter. Christ has covered the bad and your good wasn't all that good anyway. Just come to him. He will not cast you out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your compassion. Lord, we confess, I confess, there is much to your soul not enduring the misery of your people that I can't understand. But I do know at least one thing. It points to your mercy, your grace, and your compassion in dealing with us. Forgive us where we sin against you willfully. Oh, may our hearts increasingly cry out with David in Psalm 51 that you would forgive us of willful and known sin. Lord, sin in any degree is grievous, but when we sin against light that you've given and against knowledge that you've given, it's all the more grievous. So, Father, help us in your goodness. Help us in your mercy to truly and really come to you, casting ourselves upon you, knowing there that we find a remedy and a right for all wrong, and we find the only true source of salvation. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of his resurrection. We thank you that as we saw last week, you have given him a name above every name. You have highly exalted him. And we're here confessing again that we believe in him. We believe that he is all that he said in the scriptures that he is. And our desire is that others would come, make the same confession, express the same belief, and experience the same salvation. We ask it according to your mercies and in his name. Amen.